everybody. Thanks for listening. This is the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast, Episode 4. I'm Brian Beasley, and with me is Dan Albert. Good morning, Dan. Morning, Brian. So we've been kind of getting started with a few episodes. We talked about, in our first episode, eight guidelines to help people make better decisions, and we kind of went into a little bit of that. Today we're going to dig deeper into that first one. And, uh, you know, the whole, the whole point is we all want to make better uh, financial decisions. And, um, in order to make good financial decisions, you know what you're going to need? We're going to need some basic information. We're going to need to know some stuff. And it can be, seem kind of like a chore, but, uh, you're going to need some facts to work from. So. Obviously, our first guideline talks about that, and we call it Know Yourself. And uh, as we'll find out today, it's not just that simple, but it's also not that complicated either. So the big parts of Know Yourself, when we break it into pieces, we just call it Know Yourself because you need to know a lot. It's not just you as a human being, but you're going to need to know a lot of things that affect you. Everybody's unique, and you need to know your situation first one the first piece of this you need to know your situation where are you if you know where you are you know what you have you know the resources at hand you know what's going on now then you're prepared you're better prepared to move on to the next thing and you need to be also be thinking about number two where are you going what's your goal what's your objective when you have an idea of where you're going, this seems kind of obvious, but when you know where you're going, you're more likely to get there. We've heard that all before. It's kind of a cliche, but it really does add clarity and help orient both you and anyone you're working with about what we're trying to accomplish. You've got to have a mission. You've got to have a goal, and it's specific as possible. And the third piece is really important, and this is probably where we get a lot of friction when you know even you and I are working with clients is – there's things that are uniquely uniquely affecting your personal situation from a financial standpoint. And these are things like preferences, beliefs, you know, tolerances you have, anything that's unique to you that doesn't have to do with the math of the goal, anything that would be a limitation or a restriction. If knowing these is really critical. And uh, it all also helps focus your efforts, but you need to be aware of those things and actually think them through. And we're going to go into that today. So you mentioned above, right in the beginning, that it's kind of a chore. And knowing, getting all of your information and getting that all together and figuring out goals, that sounds like quite a bit of work. Why would you want to do that? What's the benefit of getting this done? Yeah, it can really seem that way. I mean, it was just at somebody's house yesterday, and they've got a lot on their plate, and there's a lot going on, and it's very easy to fall into paralysis because you think it's overwhelming, and there's just there's just so many decisions. When you really, really sit down and think about everything, it can be overwhelming. You're like, where do I even start? And, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that you have to, you know, make some priorities and start somewhere and just do a little bit at, at first. But stepping back away from that, to your point, you got to know like that there's going to be some benefit from sitting down and actually thinking about finance instead of watching that really, you know, that next new series on Netflix or something like that. Sure. 
because we all want to have that pleasure. We'd rather do anything but sit down and look at numbers, most of us. So, uh, but here's the benefit. Here's the thing. You, people are in charge of their finances these days. We talked about that in the first episode. You're responsible. In, in most cases, you're much more responsible than prior generations ever were. And that fact, it's not going to change. So you really don't have a choice. You, it's kind of like the, uh, there's an old commercial. It's like, you can pay me now, you can pay me later. You can deal with these decisions now and go through this process now, or you can not do it and then suffer the consequences later. So doing something now and doing something in advance is always preferable. And there, there's really four potential benefits to really going through this know yourself process. And the, number one is, in the long run, you're actually going to save time because when you know where your stuff is and you're organized financially and you know organized with what you're trying to accomplish, um, you're no longer searching for where is that information? What do I have? What do I? What am I doing? Did I do that right? Did I? You're constantly in this state of guessing game of am I okay? If you just get it done, you'll know. And then the next time you go through the process, it's faster, so you're saving time. The other thing that's going to happen is you might even be able to save some money along the way because you're just going to be much more efficient. When you're acting on purpose, you're going to be much more efficient and thoughtful with how you deploy your resources. So you could save money. The third thing is when you go through this process, and especially if you're married, this is going to solve problems. This is going to prevent problems from occurring in the future because a lot of a lot of financial uh, planning ahead and thinking things through, just there's infinite number of problems that can go come up. You know, it could be frictions between, hey, I don't believe what you believe. Or, um, hey, Mr. Advisor, Mr. Professional I'm working with, I forgot to tell you that thing, and now it's going to cost us two weeks of backtrack and starting over. So there's all kinds of problems that can come up. And if you go through this process, you can just mitigate so many of those problems. You can solve huge amounts of problems by just knowing exactly where you are, where you're trying to go, and what are the limitations and preferences and things involved. You've got to know that stuff. And the last thing is if you are working with professionals, in most cases, you know what, you go to talk to a professional, you're going to go talk to a mortgage broker, an attorney, a financial planner, an investment advisor, and you sit down with them the first time, you know what they're going to need to know in order to provide you with the best advice. They're going to ask you some questions. They're all going to have their own discovery process. They're all going to need to go through some sort of a fact finder. Mm -hmm. The attorney wants to know where all, what's everything you own and who owns it. And then they're going to ask you questions like, and if you die, what, what about this? What do you want to happen? And if only one of you dies and then the other one later, what's, you know, there's so many of these situational things, but if you've thought some of these things through, it's just faster. And I can tell you if, if you're prepared when you walk into, even better prepared than most, most people walk into a professional's office and they are absolutely unprepared for anything. They don't know where any of their stuff is. They don't know anything about their finances or their, or their situation. They don't know, really know what their goals even are. They haven't discussed them even between spouses sometimes. And you want to make a professional's day? And you show up and you say, here's where I am. Here's where I'm trying to go. Here's some of the limitations that are, that are there. Here's some of my preferences. How can you help me get there? You just made that professional's day because they never get that. And you know what's going to happen? The next time you call, you're, not, you're their new favorite person. They're going to love to answer the phone. They're going to love to respond to your emails because you always know 
where you are, where you're going, what you're trying to accomplish, and you're just engaging them for how. So uh, you're going to get more out of your professionals in all probability. And then that gets back to the saving money aspect where... It can. A lot of these people start a time clock. Right, right. So you're talking to an attorney. They're going to ask you, what do you have? You, uh, yeah. What kind of accounts yeah. do you have and who are the beneficiaries? And if you haven't had any thought given to that, like you were saying... Right. I mean, this is it, it, it can be really beneficial. And what we're going to do today is we're just going to break it down. We've kind of get, broken it down into a process. It's a system. It's a way of thinking. Again, our podcast is about helping people make better decisions financially. So part of this is going to be giving somebody, uh, giving people a framework for how can I think about these things. Because if I can teach you how to think about these things and how to orient yourself, you're going to be better whether you're doing things by yourself or whether you're doing things with the help of a professional and, um, and, and that's the real point today. Yeah. So let's get into it. I'm old school, Brian. So the best way I can think of for myself to get started is as we're looking at know your situation and know where you are, you take out four sheets of paper, put it on the kitchen table. Boom, 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 boom. And on top of each of those sheets of paper, on the first one you put own. What do I own? The second you write owe. What do I owe people? What are the, my liabilities? The third, put in the word in. That's my income coming in. And the fourth at the top, write in out. And that is my list of expenses. So start right there. You've got four sheets of paper sitting on the kitchen table. And then you just get going. And, you, and you're, you're taking an inventory of your situation. So when you are starting with what you own what's the stuff that i have it's as easy as starting with an account and writing that account down and what type of information uh would we need as how would you think about that brian when when i put down i've got an account with vanguard sure. and i write sure. down that account what and kind of thing should i think of as i'm writing that down yeah, I mean, you and I have a. This is and this is this is something you and I do with everybody. Is we do a, we do some sort of an assessment. I mean, and, and all professionals do some sort of assessment. We have the, and we have the benefit of software that kind of leads you down the primrose path where you can say where you say, oh, I have an account, and then all the fields are already pre-planned. And uh, if you don't have something like that, and for us, it's it's not cheap software usually to have access to those things. So uh, most people who are doing it themselves, they're not going to be wanting to invest that time. But even if you're working with a professional who has software like that, you can speed up the process dramatically and, and make things much more painless when you're uh, interacting with these professionals if you have some of this information. So I, I, I love this idea of just having four pieces of paper. And uh, the, the cool thing is we're going to be talking about things kind of, kind of in fours. So when you're looking at any of these, like if you're looking at an account or an asset that you own, um, we've broken it down really, really simply. You need, it's kind of got kind of like the English class in elementary school. We all learn who, what, when, where, why, how. Well, we're going to deal with some some of it that way. And when you've got an asset, we're going to we're going to start mainly with who, what, when, where, because it's just an asset. It's just an account at the moment, right? So, who is involved in that account? You've got an asset, you've got a house, you've got an account, whatever it is, you need to be thinking about who are the people involved here. Is it owned by you? Is it owned by you and another person? Is it owned by a business entity like an LLC or a corporation that then you control? 
who owns that asset? But there's more to who than who owns it. Who benefits? Who's the beneficiary of that account? So if you have an IRA account and you pass away, you're going to have a beneficiary of that account. But what if that person passes away with you? You want to have a contingency plan, a contingent beneficiary. So in most cases, it's spouse followed by children. So spouse is primary. If the spouse dies or predeceases and it doesn't adapt, uh, amend the form or amend the, the deal, then it goes to a contingent beneficiary. So that's the who. You need to know who's involved in with your assets. What is it? It's an investment account. It's commercial property. It's a rental property. It's a business. What kind of investment account? Is it taxable? Is it not taxable? Exactly. Is, is it a Roth IRA? Is it a uh, regular IRA? Is it um, a trust account? The man tells you who owns it, but is it just a plain investment account? Is it a pension plan account, profit sharing account somewhere, 401k plan? These are all important things. What is the asset? Where is the asset? These are things that an attorney's going to ask. Oh, you have a home. Where's the home? Oh, you have a property. Where's the property? You know, you ought to know where these, you know, it, it seems kind of obvious that you need to know where stuff. Where we find, um, you know, when working with our clients is a lot of times you say, great, you know, I have an account and I have a 401k, you know, from my old employer. You say, great, where is it? I don't know. I've got a paper somewhere. I get, they send me mail, but I'm not really sure I forgot. Or some people, sometimes most people know they go, it's at Fidelity, it's at Vanguard, it's wherever. But you need to know where your money is. You need to know that statement, that mail that comes, that pile of envelopes that piles up every month, you kind of need to pay attention to where those things are. And and by having a, a place where it's centrally organized, in our case, we, we have this huge benefit with software. We can put it all on one page where it's just blatantly obvious all on one page. It makes it infinitely more clear. But you need to know where your stuff is. And then you, know, you need to think about when. You have an asset. There's a lot of time-sensitive things that actually do matter from a planning perspective. When did you buy that asset? When did you acquire that asset? Oh, you inherited that asset. When did the you know the person who passed away? When did they die? There's, that actually is a, a date that matters. That's right. That gets to the cost basis and That's what right. the potential tax consequences are if you were to sell it. That's exactly right. So it's very important. You need to know when you bought something. You need to know when you might access an account like. Uh, it's an IRA. When am I going to touch the money? Am I going to touch it at 59 and a half? Am I going to try to do the whole early withdrawal thing free of penalties and do the substantial equal withdrawals? Or am I going to wait till 72 when the government makes me? But you need to know who, what, where, when for assets. That's right. Let's talk about an, an example for a liability, what I owe somebody. Yeah. This we, we see this a lot with uh, with our financial planning when it's like a mortgage. This is the most common debt that people have, and a lot of times people will come in and, and we'll say, "So tell us about you know you have a home, great. When did you buy it? Well, we bought it in two thousand five. What did you pay for the home? We all that stuff. But then we'll say, "Okay, talk about the mortgage." And they go, "Well, we have a mortgage," and the, and they'll tell us things. They'll, they'll give us like one or two data points on the mortgage and it's not enough to really do the plan. So we're fine. We're constantly going back and saying, Hey, what about this, 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 and this, and it's just this constant back and forth. And this is where people get exhausted is in the constant back and forth. And we'll come back. I mean, this is why we're doing this. Know yourself thing. If you have a mortgage, you need to know what was, you know, 
Who's involved in the mortgage? Who's the borrower? You know, sometimes you can have a property with three or four people that own the property, but only but maybe one or two of them that had the best credit. It's their name on the note. That, right. That happens. So you need to know who's involved. Who's liable for this debt? Is it just you individually? Is it you and your spouse? Is it you, spouse, and somebody else? Did, mom and, did mother-in-law, father-in-law um, co-sign for the loan? You know, whatever. You need to know who's involved. What is the, what is the debt? Is it credit card? Is it mortgage? Is it floating rate? Is it a 15-year, a 30-year? You know, that gets to the when, but you, you need to know what it is. What's the rate of interest? Does the rate of interest go, you know, change or is it a fixed rate? What are the limitations? Oh, it's a floating rate mortgage. It's an adjustable rate mortgage. Well, guess what? That, now there's four or five other things that are important. So you need to know, you know, what's the, when can it adjust? How much can it adjust? Can it go up and down or just one way? You know, wh what are the factors involved in that? So one thing leads to another. And you know what? All these little details actually do matter and change the kind of advice you're going to get from a professional. So it's really, it's a pain in the neck. But if you go through the process to actually put it in one place, then you know. I mean, that's the whole point of a lot of what we do is just getting all this in one place with people. And there's other people that do it too. But if you can do this on your own, it's going to just be faster and less painful. Well, and you, the confidence of it. So if you're taking your... If you're going through this exercise and you are being active and purposeful as you're writing things down and you're trying to understand what each of these assets are, what each of these liabilities are, you're going to feel more confident that you understand your situation better. You're just going to be able to feel more comfortable talking to your spouse if you're married and communication is going to be open, and that gets back up to all of those benefits that you can reap from this is uh, the yeah. confidence, the ability to act when you it, – it then also uh, – we use the, the doctor analogy quite a bit where we diagnose and prescribe. You, if you go to the doctor's office and uh, you, something's wrong, the doctor needs to take tests, ask you questions – and kind of diagnose what's going on with your system. And if they don't, they call that malpractice. You know, you walk in and say, hi, my name's Brian. And they go, great, here's some Oxycontin. Yeah, right. That's not right. They're going to say, okay, well, what's going on? What are you trying to accomplish here? So, you know, back, back to the, back to the O thing. So, right, you know, right. So we talked about who, we talked about what. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, that's all right. I was just going to try to wrap that thought up is in order to have a solution in order for the doctor to prescribe a solution to your problem to give you the medicine they need to know about yourself this process allows you to know about yourself what your situation is the solutions and what actions you need to take just fall into place and they become self-evident as you go through the process so that's what I was trying to Every detail actually does matter. It makes it easier to act. It makes it easier to decide right. that should this situation, should the solution be implemented? That's what I'm trying to get to. Right. hundred percent. And, and so, you know, when we're going back to the, to the, O, who's involved, what is it? When is it? When did you get that mortgage? What was the original date? When does it end? 
where is the mortgage? Oh, your original lender was XYZ company, but a year and a half later, that's now sold to you know another company. And so another bank or something like that. So who is the actual holder of this, this debt? It's good to know. You know so uh, who, what, when, where? Yes. Uh, money coming in. The in, uh, an example of income that you might have. Yeah, so it's that that one's usually we will have, we'll have situations where you, you send out a, an online fact finder and it'll say, hey, what are the what's 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 the income sources that you have now and in the future, and when people they forget the and in the future part, mm-hmm. right? So they'll write down, okay, I make this much per year, and then I have a bonus of this pop sometimes, but that's not guaranteed, or I work on commission and this is what it's kind of like, or here's my base and here's my hourly rate, whatever it is, and so they'll they'll oftentimes know you know what's going on, but again we go through. Who, who is going to be earning that income, receiving that income? What is the income? Is it salary, commission, bonus? W-2 income. You know, what is it, you get a W-2, is it 1099? Is it K-1 income from a business that you, that you have exposure to? What, you know, is it, is it investment income? You know, what is that income? Is it a pension? Is it Social Security? Because don't forget about the stuff that's not happening now. You need to also know about incomes coming in the future, potentially. So what about pension? What about Social Security? So that goes down to the when. When is this income going to end? Retirement. When might it start? Social Security. At 62? At 66 and three quarters? At 70? Pension? Does it start at 55? Does it start at 60? Do the numbers change? If you die with a pension, back to the who, yep. who benefits? Does your spouse get anything? Does your spouse get 50%? Does spouse get 100% of your benefit? How does that all work? Now, granted, if you're looking to refinance your house, you're not going to need to worry about pension income or Social Security income. But income's important. They're going to ask you what your income is now. So what is it? Where is it? Where is it coming from? to know who what when where all those dates you know you're taking social security at 70 so you know who what when where covers a lot of these things you just think about these things who's involved you sit back and think just take a breath step sit back from the table a little bit with your four sheets of paper and go okay i'm thinking now about this pension who's involved who's affected do they benefit what if you know and and these are all the questions that someone's going to ask potentially now, looking at that fourth sheet of paper that has out at the top, what are the, your expenses? Let's start. Let's go through who, what, when, where. Who is spending that money? Is it both of you jointly? Is it an expense for your children? For let's say college education? What are the expenses that are potentially out there, and who might be involved? Are you are you caring for another relative? Do you have expenditures that are required to go travel to take care of grandpa and grandma? Mm-hmm. This kind of thing. Uh, just know who's involved. Um, what are the expenses? And you know, different people are, are wired differently. I mean, uh, some people are very, very meticulous, and they want to know down to the penny every single week where their money goes and categorize it like into multiple folders and what they might be using software. That's how I am. I kind of categorize my expenses into yeah. each, each utility and each expense has its place. I know other people are more generalized that they generally spend 
X dollars per month. Right. And I'm some I'm somewhere between. I mean, I, I won't I will not sit and do data entry to figure out, you know, each week where every dime went. That's to me that's annoying. I don't like to spend that time, you know, like on a Saturday morning sitting and walking through mm-hmm. every single thing. But I've asked I've leveraged some technology. So for me, I have an app that goes in and it can see transactions that occur in my various accounts and then it automatically categorizes and it's not perfect, but you know what? It saves, it's a, it's a great 80% solution and it saves me an awful lot of time. But the, the, the point of this is you need to know where your money's going. You need to have an idea of how much money's going out on a regular basis from your book, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be like this whole budgeting thing. Don't say budget. That's an evil word. It, Nobody it, likes yeah, saying that it, word. It doesn't have to be that. You just, but you, you know what? You, we're all responsible for our finances these days. You kind of need to know what's going on. So, you know, who's involved? What's the expense? Is it some one of those expenses that you just don't have any control over, like housing, survival, transportation? You know. Right. Um, healthcare, you, there's certain things that are just non-negotiable. You need these things to live in modern society. And then there's other things that, you know, is it, is it discretionary? Is it optional? Sort of, you know, do you need, like, for example, some families might make a choice between, I'm going to, this is a, an easy one, but it's like, should I have Netflix and five other streaming services or is one better than the other and I can save 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 bucks. It's just little stuff, but it does add up. So you need to know what's going on with your money. You need to know when expenses might begin and end. That goes back to that mortgage question mm-hmm. because when you're yes. doing forward-looking projections for like a financial plan or a retirement plan, it's really helpful to know that that mortgage payment's gone in 15 years or whatever. Um, you need to know not only what's going out, but you need to know where it's going. There's an awful lot of people that have these like stale subscriptions that automatically renew on their credit card periodically, whether it's quarterly, annually, monthly, and it catches them by surprise because they forgot to even, they forgot that they don't even use that thing anymore and they're still, the money's bleeding out. So right. it's just a good idea to know. Yeah. Just be, know, know what's going on in your and life. And be purposeful. So don't live life on accident and make decisions. Hey, I've got money in my checking account so I can... Go out and spend it. Yeah, and it's have some like, purpose to live, what you're doing. Live your life according to your values for sure. But knowing what it's going on is going to make you more efficient than completely not knowing what's going on. Yeah. You yes. Know, you, you, again, this goes back to what we were talking about before the benefits. You can prevent problems when you know where your money goes. You can save money when you know where your money's going. And you can save time. Because every time something pops up that you, some subscription or some cost that you didn't see coming, guess what that does? It takes time out of your life. Yes. And nobody likes that kind of a fire drill. So who, what, when, where? Before we move on to the second portion of Know Yourself, uh, you've been hitting a few times on different apps that you use and technology. And we've been talking about using four sheets of paper I just thought it might make sense for us to talk for a few moments about how Mm -hmm. this exercise isn't a one-size-fits-all, that everybody's different and everybody can go through this process of putting four sheets of paper down on their kitchen table. They do it differently. Some people might be very, might use Quicken, QuickBooks, other apps, 
Uh, you've mentioned a couple apps. There's uh, Mint.com and there's other softwares. Right. There's apps all over the place in both Apple, Android world that 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 can really make the, the process a little easier. And, and we're today and and you bring up an important point. This exercise doesn't need to be some all-encompassing huge project of some big comprehensive review of your entire world and oh my god it's a huge complicated thing this could be something that like you do like on an as-needed project by project basis so this isn't like hey everybody stop everything and do a comprehensive review of every single thing in your whole life i mean that's just a nightmare for most people but yeah. everybody's going to go through something in the, you know, the next few months, the next year, that is a financial decision. And they're going to be evaluating insurance. They're going to be looking at investments. They're going to be looking at their retirement, maybe. They're thinking about refinancing a house. Maybe they're getting a will done. Maybe they're uh, getting their taxes done. Or they're trying to actually, for the first time in their life, do some proactive tax planning before next April. And they're thinking, actually, what can I do this year to save money when I do my taxes? Because once December 31st comes... That ship has kind of sailed. So maybe they're kind of trying to do tax planning. Maybe they're thinking about a business that's going on, a business transaction, and they need to plan three, five years ahead because they're thinking of selling a business. You can go through this process for any one of those things. And then you can table the other topics later. So it's not like you have to deal with all of it right now I mean but you can go oh you're gonna get your your house refinanced oh okay well real quick who what when where yeah you're establishing a discipline where are you tell us about your current mortgage think about your income they're gonna ask think about your credit they're gonna ask they're gonna want to know details you have a mortgage now guess what you've probably been through the process so guess what maybe this time you can be better prepared oh you have preferences we'll get to that in a minute too Cool, cool. Well, thanks for going into that a little bit. Yep. Let's talk about the second part. Know your goal. Where are you going? Spend some time thinking about what your goals are. So let's start with retirement. That's the big goal. What do we need to think about? This is usually the most fun project that we get to work on because it's the dream. You know, a lot of people dream of being free and financially independent. And whether you're a 21-year-old in the FIRE movement, the financially independent retire early, F-I-R-E, and you're going to retire at 35 because you were uh, amazing at your uh, trading strategies or on whatever system you're using, and you've been spending like none of your money, which is really the superpower of that whole movement, is live within your means talk about that next week or next episode we'll see how it goes but or if you're retiring at 65 or you're retiring at 70 or you're semi-retiring but this idea of financial independence it's just the, it's it's the most fun so this is the one that's usually like kind of like the dream pad you're sitting, you're sitting down with a yellow pad of paper and say what's the dream so let's let's go into that a little bit so if you're if this is the goal what's your objective what are you trying to accomplish who what where when why Who's with you? Who's affected when you when you're financially independent? Who, what's what's that? Just it's kind of like describe the lifestyle. What are we trying to accomplish here? And 
you can you can dream big. You say, oh, I'm going to have three houses in Tuscany and a yacht off of Hawaii, and we're going to travel, you know, 57 weeks a year, and you know, it, it's just ridiculous stuff. You know, there's only 52. There's weeks. only 52 weeks. Exactly. Was, yeah. <laughs> you had me pause yeah, there. But you know, even even uh, you, know, you go you go through all those things, and you'll have people that do that dream thing. But this is more specific. Who's going to be with you in retirement? Who's going to be involved? Where are you know when when you who do you want to be near? Who do you want to connect with, and how regularly do you want to connect with those people? If you got grandkids, how often do you want to see them? Why is that important? Because depending on where you live in proximity to them, there's going to be a cost associated with making that happen. Yeah, we have many clients who are grandparents, and when they retire, one of their main objections is to, objectives is to stay very close to their grandkids so that they can yeah. remain part of their lives. And if you're going to be 5,000 miles away in you know, Tuscany, there's going to be a consideration. Sure. You, know, you need to know that. So, so who, what, what's retirement look like um, from a financial standpoint? What are the expenses? And you know what? You're not going to know what your expenses are when you retire. Nobody does. We understand that. Every professional understands that. But here's what you got to do. You got to do some sort of a guesstimate, and that goes back to knowing what your expenses are now. If you know what your expenses are now, you're going to be able to take a guesstimate of what lifestyle is probably going to cost at retirement. And if you review this periodically as you approach retirement, guess what's going to happen? It's going to get more accurate. But you're constantly getting closer. You need to know what is going on with that financially at retirement. What are some of the things and the considerations that are in there? What's the health, you know, it's all, it's all the stuff. I mean, we're not going to go into all of it, but it's like, yeah, your health insurance situation is going to change. There's going to be considerations there. Yeah, maybe your housing situation changes, maybe a tax situation if you move out of state. There's all these considerations, but you need to know what is the overall objective. And if you know the overall objective, you're going to be better equipped to and have more clarity when you're going to try to figure out how to optimize your situation. Simple as that. When is retirement at 35? That's going to change my advice I give you if you're 22 years old. If you say you're going to go through the traditional thing and then you're going to retire at 65, we're going to give you different advice for that. Knowing when you retire helps us do the projections. Knowing when you're going to, you know, if you're refinancing a house, you know, knowing when you if, when you might move might affect what kind of mortgage is going to be recommended. If you're only going to stay in the place two years, that's one consideration. If you're going to stay there for 30 years, it's totally different. Go back to retirement. Where? Where are you going to live in retirement? We, you know, we live in Illinois, and Illinois has got a lot of pros and cons. I mean, the good, the good thing about where, at least in, for my opinion, is a lot of the people I love in the, are in the area. Um, but it's it's no, it's no secret. There's places that are cheaper to live. There's places that have lower taxes for certain things, and there's places certainly with uh, with better weather in the winter time. And people make or better views. Yeah, we've had some clients who have been very thoughtful and in planning out their retirement, where they were actually reviewing different states to try to get a better understanding of the different tax implications. Uh, yeah, and for each but, state, and they knew that they knew some of the things that they wanted to get. They knew they knew some of the the what's in there, and the what situation like they wanted certain tax environments they wanted a certain weather. lifestyle weather you know, a, a view part. you know 
I like water. I like mountains. I like lakes. I like rivers. You know, whatever. I like to ski. So all those things come into play and when you're trying to identify your goals. And so, you know, who, what, when, and where on any goal, whatever it is. I'm going to do my taxes. There's a who, what, when, where. It's probably really fast. It's a small situation where you're just doing one year's of taxes. But if you're doing like some long-term tax planning, there's going to be a who, what, when, where component on, on those kinds of decisions as well. So it's not just a retirement plan. It can be a small thing or a smaller project. Sure. So when, when you lay out your goals, like uh, retirement, for example, and you're working with a professional or you're trying to figure out how much to save in your 401k plan in order to achieve that goal, having a more concrete understanding of what your retirement is will give you a better understanding of how much you need to save. And thus, it gives you that opportunity to act. You know how to act to get to that goal Correct. with much more accuracy. Uh, we still other, haven't discussed. Go ahead. We still haven't discussed the single most important thing you need to think about. Correct. Doing but a goal. Before we get there, I just wanted to mention, with regards to goals, the other aspect of going through that exercise is there's been plenty of research out there that shows the more that you can visualize with realistic expectations and where you can close your eyes and taste what it is you're trying to get to, mm -hmm. the better chances that you're going to actually achieve it. So the goals aspect, not only from making financial decisions, but it can help you have a more fulfilling yeah, life. It's not just math. It's an actual emotional chemical thing that happens in your brain that that can actually increase the likelihood of something coming just simply by thinking about it and visualizing. Um, there's, there's all kinds of, uh, like you were talking about research and there's anecdotal examples. I know professional golfers do this all the time. They're going through visualization techniques on airplanes, just thinking through that course shot by shot by shot, visualizing it in detail. The first shot's going to land here. The second shot's going to land there. And it improves. It's been proven. It improves their results when they are at the actual match on that golf course. I read a book, and they were talking about um, a military sniper school. And they needed more snipers to graduate. And they, they, needed, they didn't want to lower the standards. They couldn't do that. They, need, they just needed more. There was a need. There was more need for more sniper-qualified marksmen in that particular time they were talking about. And that's literally what they did. They had guys going through, listening to you know tapes or CDs of visualization exercises and guided hypnosis type stuff where they're visualizing their Making thing, the shot. Making the shots and doing the stock and not being seen and, and doing all the things they and observing perfectly and all the things they needed to do. And their graduation rate from that school went up so I mean th this isn't just about the math this will make you this will actually improve your life a little bit I mean yeah. it really can and it can improve your results too it's just it's just a fact you have something to look forward to and that gets into the most important thing when you're talking about goals yeah. you need to know why that's even a goal yeah there you go why why is it important to you yes why are you making it a goal if it's not that important, you're probably not going to do it. You know, my brother, my, you know, my brother and, and some of my best friends are personal trainers, health and fitness experts, strength and conditioning trainers, and um, a lot of people have, fun, you know, 
fitness goals. They want to look good. They want to be healthy. They want to be able to perform. The people that get the best results, they have the strongest why. And it's no different for your financial goals. Why is this important to you? Why are we doing this? And if you and, and we've seen situations sometimes where somebody uh, went through this whole process and they get this whole big thing done, and and then they make a commitment and they go do some make some big financial decision, and then it turns out that uh, you know a year later they go, eh, I probably shouldn't have done that. It's not really what I wanted to do. And then that cost them time, effort, money, energy. Yeah, they made a big decision that kind of sabotaged right. their retirement goals. Right. Right, and uh, we've we've seen it. I've seen it in, uh, you know, in, in my wife and I. We've seen it in our own family where you know we had somebody that uh, they they moved away to their dream retirement and found out they didn't know anybody, and then they moved back because <laughs> what was more important to them in the end, the relationships, family, yeah. So, no what else why. do we need to think about? And so we we focused on the know where you are. We just talked about where you're going, your goals. What else? That third part. So if you know where you're going and you know where you are, it helps do some some math. But like we mentioned earlier, everybody's unique. And that's where the frictions happen when you begin to try to go down the advice path and, and start coming up with actual implementation because the rubber when the rubber meets the road it's like okay we're going to actually commit to doing this thing you're gonna move this money over here you're gonna do this insurance policy you're gonna get this mortgage you're gonna get this document signed at the attorney's office you're actually executing your will or your trust documents or whatever now you have to get to the point where it's permanent and this is the area, this third area of knowing what's unique to you is where the frictions usually occur if it's not addressed in advance. You need to think about not just the broad things, but the specific things. And this is where things like beliefs, preferences, you know, philosophies you have, maybe they've been handed down in your family over years and you, you have, a, you have a, a way of thinking about certain things and it just matters to you. It's not the math. It's emotional. And you need to acknowledge those things. You need to be aware of those things. And if you're working with a professional, they need to know too. And that's where you, that's where you can avoid problems. This is the part probably that can, can prevent the most problems if you're trying to achieve any financial goal. Let's go through some financial examples. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is risk tolerance. Risk tolerance is something that's unique to each person. Even between a, a married couple, you have a married couple, uh, the husband may have one risk tolerance. Okay, before we, before we get into another. there, let's, sure. let's, let's, let's talk about what, what risk tolerance even means. Okay. So, what we're talking about here is we're talking about investing. We're talking about when, when you've got money invested in something and you're getting a statement in the mail or you're going online periodically and checking how it's doing and saying how much is my net worth or you're charting it out on, on a spreadsheet somehow, doesn't matter. You're looking at numbers and 
in most investments, if you're in stocks, if you're in bonds, if you're in real estate, those numbers are going to go up and down in the short run. They're going to bounce around. And what risk tolerance is designed to do is to understand how long can the string be on that yo-yo. So if your investment, your, your net worth is bouncing up and down on its journey month to month and you're getting mail that says, hey, you're now worth this. And next month it says, oh, now you're worth this. How long can the string be on that yo-yo? How, how much can you tolerate that up and down swing? Can you handle seeing a decline of X percent in a month, in six months, over a year? Yeah, those statements show they have the numbers right there listed on that front page. How much did I make for the month or how much did I lose that month? Right. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about risk tolerance. So knowing that is, is really key. Are you and your spouse aligned? And we, you know, we, we use a very precise piece of software. It ranks, it can, it can accurately determine what risk tolerance is from like one to, on a score of one to 99. 99 being you can tolerate a huge amount of swing. One being, please don't ever let it go down ever even a little bit. And we, when we started doing this, we, just, we try to do one profile per, per household. And what we found out is that you need to do if you have a, a husband and wife situation, you need to find out. One's conservative, one's more aggressive. You need to figure out and have that conversation. It's been very, very helpful when we do that. But you need to know what's going on in terms of, of your tolerance for those things. If you know that, why is this important? If you know that, guess what the doctor... If the doctor knows you're allergic to penicillin, guess what they can do? They can avoid giving you penicillin. They can avoid giving you penicillin. So... It's no different with an investment plan if you know your risk tolerance more precisely. And all this is everything we're talking about today, you need to be as specific as possible. The more specific, the better the advice. The more specific you know yourself, the better decisions you're likely to get. The more clear, as you said earlier, the more clear the solutions will be. Right. When you get to the, the risk tolerance, you say if, if you've identified to yourself that I'm I'm conservative. And there's a, an opportunity for me to buy a very risky investment. Well, maybe I shouldn't do that because that investment doesn't match my conservative nature. Yeah, hundred percent. And 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 even more. Another way of looking at it is to say, you know, how, why why did you get more detailed? Um, well, if you go to a doctor and he interviews you about how you feel, he's going to know sort of what he should do. If he does a physical examination where he can actually check you out he's going to know a little bit better if they can do a blood test they'll know a little bit more if they can do a x-ray they'll know even more and then there's an mri exam where it knows exactly what's going on inside your body and even that has its limitations but guess what happens the the diagnosis is so much more accurate and you know more precisely what's going on and we found this people used to say i'm conservative and then we do their risk tolerance profile more precisely and we find out that they're actually not conservative it was a subjective thing in their mind right what does conservative what does the word conservative mean yeah conservative means one person to you know um, a, a person that says oh i only buy really really large well-established stocks but it's all i invest in well, so i'm them, conservative they think that's conservative 
someone else might think, well, I'm pretty moderate because I'm mostly in CDs, but you know what? I have some mutual funds that are all in stocks, so that makes me moderate. They might actually be conservative. And so by quantifying these things down to a number and getting it more specific, and whether it's a, a risk score like what we use and other advisors use, or whether it's knowing um, numerically how much of a swing can you take, there's tools out there that can define that. Um, that's just an example of where you can really nail it. Right. And why is it important to match? So let's say you go through all this exercise and you've identified your own personal risk tolerance and then you've identified an investment strategy that matches yours. Why is that so important? It's because you can't, if your investment strategy doesn't match who you are, then your conviction with that investment strategy is not going to be there. If you're conservative and that risk strategy is very aggressive, that means it's going to be moving around a lot and uh, your stomach acid is going to be getting up because you're not comfortable with it and you may, may be making a decision, a bad decision at the wrong time. And that's going to happen typically. If, you're, if your investments are too aggressive, what's going to happen is, is you're going to be highly likely to sell out at a bad time when things are down. Because it went down so far, now you're panicking. And if your investments are too conservative, then you're going to look at that situation and go, and you're more of an aggressive person and your investments are more conservative than you are, then when markets are hitting all-time highs, you're going to look and say, hey, I'm not keeping up. And what are you likely to do? You're probably going to buy high and try to adjust at the wrong time. If your investments match you very precisely, Odds are you're not going to have to make changes very often and you're going to be able to live with it because you're going to know that you, everything's going to pretty much behave in line with your expectations. And, you know, Vanguard's shown this. The less you have to fiddle with your strategy, the better off the results are over the long run. So that's, that's, just, that's just one area. What are some other areas where someone might have some preferences or philosophies? Well, college. College funding is another one. Uh, do you, as a parent, want to, is it your goal and is it your preference to fully pay for your child's college education? Or do you want the kid to have some skin in the game and do you want them to pay for a portion or all of it? It's not that right. there's a right or wrong. It's how do you feel about that particular issue? And there's and, others here, too. You've absolutely. Got, you know, along the same line, you got, you got um, you know, what is your philosophy about uh, leaving money to people when you die or is it are you charitable or are you not charitable you know it's everybody has a different philosophy on this some people want all their money to go to charity some want some of it to go to the charity some some people say i want to die broke some people say i want to leave a million dollars to my children um you might have a philosophy about insurance some people believe in it some people don't and that's okay but if you don't believe in insurance, that's going to adjust how you need to live your life to cover those risks. Or you might just live naked and say, I'll take you know, I'll take my chances. Sure. And we're seeing how different people, um, how different people are with, with all these situations. You know, as we look at like a pandemic situation, some people are like, you know what, I'm going to take my chances. And other people are like, I am staying home. And it's all, everybody's different. Right. But, Another, but you should know, the point is, you should know what is unique to your situation. And right. what's going to affect your situation 
um, and your advisors need to know any specific special things, any philosophies you have or beliefs that are embedded that, that you just need to have it be this way. That's just, it may limit you, it might change things, but it's very important to know. Right, right. The last one I kind of wanted to bring up was how do you feel about debt? Because uh, we've had some clients who really take full advantage of mortgaging and taking loans and being very strategic, and they're very comfortable with it. And we've had other folks who absolutely do not want to owe anybody any money, and they don't want, they want to pay off their house very quickly or not even take a mortgage out and pay everything with cash. And that's okay. Yeah. It's Either just, way. But acknowledging what these things are helps you along the way and helps you to make those better yeah, decisions yeah. for yourself. That's actually one of the most common questions is, should we pay off the house or should we keep the mortgage? It's a hugely common question. And there is a mathematical component to it. You can, you can game it out mathematically and say, okay, here's the math. But the answer we always give is, okay, here's the math, but... Do you have a preference here? Do you have, you know, there's, there's an emotional component to, you know, not owing anybody a dime. I mean, that's, that may not financially be the optimal perfect thing mathematically, but there is just a piece that can occur when you don't owe anybody anything. You are debt free. So, hey, can you talk a little bit about additional limitations or other (laughs) things beyond your own emotional aspect? Things that sure are, worth looking at and considering before we move off. Yeah, there, I mean, there's other things that are going to limit our situations, and, and they're, they're not unique to you. And this is where some of those details matter type things come up. Um, there's limitations that we don't control, and they're going to really focus our efforts. And those could include what are interest rates right now? How do markets tend to behave? So, for example... If you have a goal and you're trying to figure out how to allocate your investments, um, there's just a, 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 a fact of how markets behave. Stocks don't move in straight lines in an upward manner. They bounce around. That's just a fact. That's just like, it's like the weather. It's like the climate. If you're investing in the stock market or a stock, a common stock, or if you're if you're a new beginner investor and you've got one of these new apps and it tells you the hot stock that's moving this week and you get all excited and you put your money into some stock that just declared bankruptcy or even if it didn't just declare bankruptcy, but it's like a it's going to bounce all over the place very erratically day to day to day because stocks aren't built for day to day to day. The stock market tends to work very, very well over very long periods of time. So if you need the money in three months, you probably don't want to be investing in that bankrupt company. That might be a limitation to consider. Yes. So um, if interest rates are really low, we don't control that. you got to navigate it. That's going to come into play. We don't control that any more than we control the weather. Um, but professionals, the thing about these kinds of things, structural things like tax law, estate planning law, um, interest rates, those kinds of things. They're just structural. It is, it's the environment you live in. It's the waves that are coming down, you know, out from the ocean and coming into the beach. If you want to surf those waves, guess what? You got to work with them. You can't work against them. You don't get to have an awesome surf ride on a surfboard unless you've really worked with the ocean and been paid paying attention to how it works because you don't get to decide how mother nature behaves 
it's all work with the system. You can't fight it. Yeah, there's a limit to how much you can contribute to an IRA, for example, every year. Yeah. And 401ks get taxed at certain times, and there's penalties. So you don't just get to invent your world completely mm-hmm. out of your imagination. You do have to work within the real world. And uh, the professionals all should know this, so it's not something you should be having to worry about like on the front end and do all this planning. I don't think you need to do all that level of research before you go, unless you're doing it all yourself. But if you're engaging a tax professional, a CPA, um, they ought to know. If you're engaging an investment advisor, they ought to know their environment. Same thing. This is why they're called experts. And that's why you should pay them. You know, and they can save you time because they know all this stuff better than, than maybe you do. Yeah. Um, well, that so, looks like a pretty good summary so, of yeah, the it, know yourself. I mean, just, just to recap, know where you are, know where you're going, and know about like philosophies, beliefs, preferences that might further limit the situation. You can do it bit by bit, project by project, or you can try to get a comprehensive view. If you're looking at a situation, just think of who, what, when, where. If you're setting a goal, know why. Why is it important? Have a conversation with your spouse. Create some discipline in your life to go through this stuff. If you do this stuff, it works. It never makes things worse. It always makes things better. It always increases the likelihood of your success. If you know where you are, where you're going, and you have those conversations, and you're able to communicate it, you know where your stuff is, you're organized. It's huge. It's the foundation of every other thing in your finances is this step. Yep, that's our first guideline. Hey, you ready? I got a few questions from the wild I like to hit you with. Go. All right, the first one. Should I rent or buy my home? It's a pretty common one. Simple, right? Yeah, simple, simple question. (laughs) What's the right answer? This is absolutely not a simple question, and there is no simple answer. That is true. There's a lot to think about. What's going on if you're trying to decide to rent or buy? Well, I'm just going to tell you, this is... I was just joking with my kids last night. You know, the, the, the answer, if you, ask, if you ask a financial advisor any question, here all, their usual first words out of their mouth is, well, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> and it, this, is, this is really true. If you're trying to decide whether to rent or buy, yes, there's some math involved. You can go through all that and figure out you know, what's going on mathematically. So who, what, when, where. Um, you know, obviously, you know, there's, there's a who component maybe, but we were talking about what, what's going on here. What, what's the cost of owning the home and it's, it's the mortgage, it's the, uh, it's the maintenance, it's the repairs, it's the, everything's on you if you own the house and that's a consideration and you can go through that whole mathematical project. And that's, that's, that's important because when you have a rental situation, you just have the rent and that's it typically. So rent and rentals and renter insurance is easy. If you own, you've got more complex situations, uh, you, a new roof, you got to power wash that deck, you got to paint periodically, you got to replace things that break, uh, sump pumps, furnaces, air conditioners, windows, lawn care, out, lawn yeah. care, all that junk is, is, is in there, and, and property taxes. And it's all, it all needs to be re added all up together to really do the math. Um, and then you know, there's that component that if you own your home, you have some equity in the home, and if you're in that home long enough for the home to go up in value, 
And if you're lucky enough to live in a part of the country where the home actually does go up in value over that period of time, then that can be very beneficial for, for sure. But there's other considerations that might play, come into play here. Where do you live? Some parts of the country are much more affordable than others relative to income. You know, my brother lives in Southern California and it's ex incredibly expensive to buy a home there for the relative to people's incomes. And a lot of people rent in Southern California just for that reason. Um, if, if you've got family in some place that's much less expensive, maybe a more rural area, housing's a lot cheaper relative to income, um, that's going to come into play. So we need to know kind of where, where are we, what's the situation, what's the environment like, what are the property taxes involved? Um, I mean, living here in Illinois, uh, especially Northern Illinois, you've got this, uh, really high relative, um, property taxes. That's right. And so it's, it's, a, it's a real drain. I mean, granted, at least where I live, I mean, the parks are well kept. The grass is green. There's flowers planted. They put up Christmas lights periodically, and the schools are generally really, really good. So you, you do kind of get, I mean, for me, I'm getting kind of what I pay for, but. So what kind of guideline, to finish this question up, yeah. to buy a home, what kind of guideline can we give someone? Yeah, and the mortgage people have their own guidelines about what kind of mortgage one can afford. They'll have their little ratios like the 28% rule or the 36% rule, and then 28% of your income type of thing going to mortgage interest and all that. And they'll say, hey, here's the house you can afford. And a lot of people go off of that, and they find that maybe they bit off more than they could chew because there's all this other stuff that we talked about. Um, you know, Dr. Tom Stanley, uh, who wrote The Millionaire Next, Bo Next Door, he, he wrote a book called that we're actually going to cover in a, in a future episode in this podcast. And uh, in there, he actually has a guideline for buying a home. And his contention is like, if you, the, your housing decision is like one of the biggest decisions in your whole financial life. It's, it's gigantic. And his guideline is your home value should not be more than three times your household annual income before tax. That's his, that's his guideline. And I, I can tell you, I mean, I, I put that out there on, on a Facebook group and boy, I mean, there are people going, are you kidding me? There's no way. That's an insane guideline. There's no way. There's not even a house in the world that's, I can't even get a house that's, you know, that's that low. Where I live, houses are all whatever. I mean, like Orange County, California. I mean, you could live in a zero lot line, three bedroom, small place with a two car garage on a driveway that you share with five people. And the house is going to be $1.2 million. It's a nice area. It's clean and it's new and it's all that, but it's, the weather's great, but $1.2 million and you don't even have a yard or a view. It's. And you may only make a hundred thousand dollars. So to what Dr. Tom Stanley would say, is he'd say rent. Yeah. And guess what a lot of people do in Southern California? A lot of them rent unless they've, unless their family's been there for generations and they inherit homes and all the equity that goes along with it. People moving from other places have a tough time with the housing cost unless they have a very, very, very high income. So, um, but, and we'll talk about it when we cover that book, but if you buy a house that's less than three times your household income, there's a correlation with happiness there. So that's, that's the guideline. There's just more to it. You need to, you need to dig and you need to go through a process. It's not a simple question by any stretch. Well, that's too bad, Brian. I was looking for a rent or buy, which one, A or B? 
depends. It depends. <laughs> Famous answer. All right. Question number two. I want to save 20% of my income, but I have two opportunities at work. I have a 401k plan with a 5% match, but I also have the ability to buy my employer's stock after tax at a 15% discount. Which should I prioritize? So this is a question one of our one of our clients had um, earlier this week, and um, in their situation, they make enough. They don't make a small amount of money. They have a good income, and they're able to max max out that four hundred one k. So uh, to this question, the match is not a relevant question because they can afford just to fully fund and get the match on their four hundred one k. So that's not really the issue. The issue is should I put all my money in the four hundred one k? Or should I, should I put less than the maximum in the 401k and go after this stock opportunity with the employer stock? And it, the, way, the way we broke this down is we looked at what's, what's the income. When you're putting money into your 401k, it's coming out before taxes. So you're basically saving a percentage right there by not having to pay taxes today. So they're, they're in a higher tax bracket and in their situation, that was their tax bracket was higher than the discount they're going to get. It's about twenty five percent. Yeah, so if they're in the twenty five percent tax bracket, that's better than fifteen. Than so the fifteen percent discount for the stock. So just just on the discount situation, the tax benefit was greater than the discount on the stock because you're buying the stock after tax, so you're not getting the benefit of the of saving money on taxes. So you're paying you're paying twenty five percent and then you're saving fifteen. So that's kind of like looking at the situation. What are the immediate benefits to me right. for taking one action right. versus the, the there's other? There's another layer, though. So this layer is this. If, if you have a lot of money in one stock, just generally, whether it's your employer or not, would you put all your money in that one stock? Me, no. I right. Maybe believe in diversified but portfolios. Most, peop most people would probably go down there. So most, most, most best practices would say, don't put all your eggs in one basket, especially if it's your employer stock because you could lose your job and a big chunk of your net worth all at the same time because a lot of times what happens is company gets into a problem, stock goes down, and then they start doing layoffs. They start letting people go. Um, or you know, the worst case I've ever seen is the situation there was a company in the early 2000s called Enron, and Enron had this huge stock that had been doing phenomenally well, and a lot of their employees were putting all of their money in there. And in, in their situation, they should, they could actually put 401k money into their company stock, and the whole company blew up. There was all kinds of fraud allegations, and the company pretty much went to zero. So people lost all their 401k and their job and all their company stock all at once. So there's a risk of having all your money eggs in one basket. By prioritizing the 401k, you can do an immediate, you know, diversification type of, of thing. Now, in, in this guy's situation, the, the way it worked out is he's going to max out his 401k, and then if there's anything additional, he's going to go ahead and use the tax because in his plan, he doesn't have to hold the stock forever. He could sell it, like, right away. He could sell it, like, right away, or he could put some sort of a stop loss underneath that stock and let it ride up and then gradually let that, you know, put in some, some sort of a protection or a floor so that the price of the stock goes down to a certain point, it just automatically sells. So he's got a lot of control that he can put in place there to mitigate that risk. But he's he's not in a situation where he's having to sit on that stock 
in a big way for a very, very long time. And, and there's other ways. We, we discussed other things. I mean, you could just do the stock and then put all those protections in and say, hey, look, I could put all my money in that stock and, and put some protection in and, and, and have a floor in there. Or I could buy a put option on that and put some downside protection on that stock. And there's a cost to that. And we, t- we talk about all those different options. But if you're going to prioritize simple, effective, playing the probabilities, focusing on controllables, all the guidelines we talked about in episode one, it let you know, the situation of knowing where he was tax bracket-wise, where is he trying to go in the long run, what are his considerations, what are his preferences unique to him, we decide we ought to prioritize the, the 401k first and get the benefit out of that tax benefit. So some other people may disagree with that. Some may have different ideas on that, but that was our answer. Okay, question number three. I would love to hear a professional's take on whether or not you think the new wave of Robinhood traders are affecting the market and how? Three million new Robinhood accounts since the start of the year with an average age of 31 years old, if my memory serves me right. Are fractional shares and free trades negatively affecting the market? So there's some layers in here. There's a lot going on. There always are layers, Brian. You're a big onion here. So <laughs> Every time uh, we talk, I, we talk layers. So <laughs> for people in the last in the last year and a half or so, there have been the advent of some additional ways to invest for people other than the traditional big, large brokerage firms that have been around for years and years and years. And um, one of these is called Robinhood. There's others out there. Um, that, that are similar and they, they're really optimized to be really simple to join, simple to add, to create an account. They're, they're, they're really optimized to be used on a mobile device and people, and they're generally they're focused on stock trading or stock investing, ETF investing, that kind of thing. So they're not really looking for people that are wanting to buy individual bonds or do managed money type things. And, um, and it's really created a huge wave of new people who normally would never get into investing. It's brought them into the investing world. And it's really kind of, in the long run, it's really kind of awesome. You know, we do all our research every time when we were coming up through our training, Dan, you know, there are all these examples of, hey, if you start saving this amount of money when you're 22, the math is amazing when you're 65, if you're saving and investing over time. So over the long run, it's way, way better. And we've, there's all these examples, like the earlier you start, the better off you are. The person that started in, in their 20s and invested for 10 years and then stopped investing yeah. still had more money than somebody that started at age 32 and saved for 35 years until they were... I mean, it's, we've seen these examples where it's just better if you start earlier. And the exciting thing about this is that there's millions and millions of young people and new people that, or, or even people that don't have very large incomes and haven't had in their minds, maybe they didn't feel like they had access to the markets, suddenly they have it in their hand in a mobile device. And that's very, very exciting potentially. And the, other, the other thing that's, that occurred is um, with Robin in particular, they came out and they said, hey, we're, there's, there's no trading costs. I mean, yes, are they like doing this for free? Is it like, where's their money coming from? I mean, they're, they're making money, but at least it's not being, it's not right up in your face 
you place this trade, it's costing you $7 or $10 or $100. Some of these people only want to invest $100. And so these apps and this technology has really changed things. And then what happened after they said zero trading costs? Charles Schwab said zero trading costs. TD Ameritrade went to zero trading costs. Fidelity went to zero trading costs. So there's a huge benefit of this entire wave in terms of the customer getting a lower expense situation, at least a lower obvious expense situation. I mean, all these companies are still making money. They're going to make a profit. You hope they do because you want them to stick around so you have this access. But this kind of trend can be a really, really good thing for a couple of reasons. you got young people coming in, learning about investing, and over 20 to 40 years from now, hopefully you got a lot more financially literate people. You've got more experienced investors in their 30s. Um, and a lot of times we see people that they're not experienced until they're maybe in their 40s or 50s. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. when he, The average age here is 31 for new accounts. And in our past, in our histories, the people generally come to us in their mid to late 40s or into their 50s. And they're finally serious about this stuff to sit down and they want right, to right. get their situation in order. And now you have young people in their 30s. Uh, I, that's great. That gives and, them and, an opportunity to yeah, and, get and, their act together and, sooner. And, and in our careers, what's happened is typically, I mean, people would start investing in their 30s, sometimes their mid-30s. And they didn't really, you know, from a selfish standpoint... <laughs> We love it when people seek out advice, and it's usually after they got beat up a little bit, when they actually saw real money actually go down in a bear market. And bear markets happen every so often. And this is, in fact, just recently, we just had our first bear market in like 12 years. That's a really long time between bear markets. So that means that no one who's under the age of like 45 probably lost any real money in in the 2008 crisis. And so if, if they lost, if, if they're under 45 and they were looking, they'd never lost any money. You know what was happening back in December and November of 2019? Everybody's pretty aggressive. And if they're, if they're being overly aggressive, they're going to make mistakes. So that brings up another thing. What's going to happen to all these people? And you see, we're seeing articles all over the financial news about, you know, these, these people are doing idiotic things. Or these people are being stupid and they're buying, they're buying uh, they're excited about penny stocks that are under a dollar. They're buying companies that are bankrupt. I mean, and, and I'm talking, this doesn't seem like that big of a deal, you know, in, in our world, but this is actually a real thing that's happening in society is that there's kind of this like, there's people out there saying, oh, these people are foolish. The people are being done, doing dumb things. And you know what? It's normal. You get all these beginners up, there's going to be a learning curve. They're going to make mistakes. This is the way things work when you have 12 million and 20 million people jump into something that they've never done before. But they're going to learn. And so is it a good thing in the long run? I think it's a great thing in the long run to have more people involved in the investment markets and learning about this stuff. I think it's phenomenal. Now to the other part of this question about is it manipulating the markets right now? How is it affecting the markets? How is this new wave of all these people really affecting the markets? Well, I, I looked up some math on this. If, if you just estimate that the average Robin Hood investor has maybe even a $5,000 account, it's a pretty small account relative to most investment accounts. Most, you know, you, the average account size at like TD Ameritrade is like over $100,000. 
five thousand dollars is pretty small. And if you got ten million people with a five thousand dollar account, and I can tell you it's probably lower than that based on my anecdotal interactions online. There are people out there that have a five hundred dollar account. But let's let's give a benefit of the doubt. Five thousand dollar account size on average. That's fifty billion dollars. Well, that's a big number until you look at how big the stock market is. It's $37 trillion. So Robinhood is like just over one-tenth of 1% of the money in the stock market, maybe. And then you compare it to the behemoth that's, that's coming. You know, Charles Schwab is in the process of acquiring TD Ameritrade. That combined entity, from articles I've read, is going to have... $5 trillion held at those firms. So they're 100 times bigger than Robinhood. Now, is Robinhood going to grow? Are they going to learn? Are they going to expand their, their services and the other apps as well? Probably. Or they'll get gobbled up by some of these other companies and then everybody will benefit in the long run. But is it really, is that amount of money with these new people really driving this whole recovery of the overall market indexes off the bottoms in March? Probably not. Every you, you need a lot more people buying, yeah. <laughs> Out of thirty-seven trillion dollars, they they can't really move the needle that much, but they have had an effect on because a lot of these beginners, what do they do? They think, oh, I have a small amount of money, I need to buy stocks that have really really small share prices, because then I can buy more shares. The leap of logic is is that if I have more shares, I'll make more money. Well, you and I know that's patently not true. Not sure. factual at all. Price has nothing to do with how the performance of the business is going to be. It has a, it's a, there's a different thing there. But because they focused on those low price stocks, those low price stocks like dollar thirty seven stock or something like that, if it's a dollar thirty seven per share, a lot of stocks with those low, low, low prices, there's not a lot of shares traded each day. And if there's not a lot of shares traded, you can have a, a few people move those stocks radically up or down. And um, and that's just, time will tell if that works out better or not. I mean, odds are, what we're hearing from all the experts, in my opinion, that's probably not going to end well. You know, if a company declares Chapter 11 and a bunch of people buy that stock, it's not going to help the stock. It's not going to help the company get out of Chapter 11. It's just going to make the stock price go up. It's not going to make the company healthier. It's still going to go through Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And historically speaking, company goes through Chapter 11 bankruptcy. That stock's going to be worthless because all the money's going to be paid to all the creditors and the bankers and the people that own bonds of that company long before the stockholder gets it. They're, they're usually, last in line. They're last in line, and they're usually sitting there looking at dust on the, on the factory floor wondering how they're going to get their investment back and it's gone so i really you know it's it's a little like watching you know the analogy i would use is this you know outside our office periodically we live in an area where there's some public transportation nearby and every once in a while you'll see somebody walking around with a cane not the cane to help them walk but the cane to help them see they're tapping their blind cane they're, they, they, they're blind sure and they're crossing train tracks, and there's buses around here, and there's traffic, and one-way streets, and two-way streets, and it can get really chaotic and confusing sometimes. And 
what I would caution these people who are visually impaired at the moment because they're going through that learning curve. They're beginners. They don't know what they don't know. They, don't, they might not realize sometimes that they're about to step in front of a bus. And all a lot of the professionals that are experienced and a lot of the experts are saying right now, they're not saying it the right way, maybe. They're not being as delicate with these people's feelings and understanding that these people think that you're the man if you're an expert. Most of these professionals, in their heart of hearts, want these people to have a great experience investing and they just don't want them to step in front of a bus. So when you're seeing headlines like these Robin Hood investors are doing something stupid, they're day trading and all this stuff, first of all, it's normal that they're going to go through a learning curve. It's normal that they're going to get excited. It's normal that they're going to try to shoot for the moon because they just don't know what they don't know. But they will learn. The goal, though, is just to keep them from stepping in front of the bus so that they, because if you have a horrible experience on the front end, a lot of people will swear off of investing forever, and then they'll miss 20 years of potential growth in their finances. And we've met people that have done that. And they come back 20 years later going, oh, I missed it. I should have done, should have, would have, could have 25 years ago. So it's a great question. It's something that's not something that, that we're, we're hearing in our own clientele, but it's definitely something that's happening out there in the real world. And, you know, and there's, there's, gosh, there's like 60,000 people talking about investing in one group on, on Facebook. And this is a big thing. And if somebody doesn't think it's a big thing, they got their eyes closed. It, long term, this is a huge thing. But is it, is it really moving the markets now? Probably not. There's just not enough money there yet. Okay, last question, Brian. What index that is commonly reported in the news can I follow to get a sense of how my investments are doing? So we have clients call in from time to time and they're trying to figure out, just get a, a thumbnail sketch of how they're doing on their investments. And so they're watching the evening news and during the business section of the news, they bring up, they might report the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the S&P 500 Index or NASDAQ or what have you. And that's about it. And our, these folks are saying, okay, well, we've got this information that's readily available. Which one of them should I be looking at that will help reflect what's going on in my own personal investments. This is actually more common than it than it than it should be, in my opinion. The media has done; they're really doing a disservice to the vast majority of where the the vast majority of money that is invested in the world is not 100% in stocks. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is 30 stocks. The S&P 500 is 500 of the largest American companies that are publicly traded. The NASDAQ is thousands. The NASDAQ composite is hundreds and hundreds of companies that are just different. They're not, they weren't originally on the New York Stock Exchange, for example. Then maybe a lot of those, those companies happen to be technology stocks, but it's not all of them. You got companies on the NASDAQ that make paper clips. I mean, it, it's, it's a very broad world. But the thing to keep in mind about all these indices that are on TV is they're all 100% stocks. On our risk scale, from 1 to 99, the Dow Jones, the S&P, and the NASDAQ have risk scores somewhere between 75 and 80. 
typically? Well, if you have your portfolio that matched with your risk score and your risk score is 45, you're not going to have 100% of your money in stocks. So what's a person to do? Well, sadly, the answer we have to give when this question comes up is, if you're not 100% in stocks, there's nothing on broadcast news that's going to be beneficial to you to understand exactly what's going on in your portfolio. That's the bad news. Because they don't report the performance of a bond index. They'll tell you what the yield is on treasury bonds. But what's that mean to the average person? The yield doesn't tell you what your fund did or what your bonds in your portfolio did. So what's the best thing you could possibly do? The cool thing is this. We no longer depend as much on broadcast TV news for our information on what's going on in our lives. We have this wonderful tool called the Internet. And granted, there's a learning curve like all new technology, and it's not, a, it's not new technology now, but for a lot of people who are retired, for example, and we had a question like this recently from a retired person, they might not like the Internet. But how do you know what's going on in your, in your portfolio? Look at your portfolio. Watch yours. Yours is different. Unless you're 100% stocks, what do you care what the S&P 500 does? A portion of your portfolio might be affected by that if you have some stocks in your portfolio. But if you're 85% bonds or 80% in a bond portfolio because you're in your late 70s, early 80s, and you're super conservative and it, it fits your goals and it fits your needs, then guess what? None of it's really that relevant. So either... Look at your own accounts online. You know, if you have an advisor or if you have an advisory situation, a lot of times they'll provide you with reports or even a web portal like we do where somebody can go on and see percentage by percentage how are we doing. I mean, heck, we can even have a system where we can send somebody a text message every day if they wanted to and say, hey, here's how you're doing so far. Here's your performance year to date, quarter to date. I mean, that, that's possible. But there's lots of ways. You can get it on your phone. Go through the portal. Go to your advisor's portal like what we have and somebody can open it up and say, how, do, how am I doing on a year-to-date compared to whatever? And and it's, the technology's out there. But the bottom line is you've got to look at your own stuff. Don't worry about if you're comparing your portfolio to something that doesn't match your portfolio's risk, you're going to be always wondering, why is it so different? Yeah. Especially if you're conservative. I mean, the market's up. Why am I not up? Well, because you're not in it. You're conservative, remember? Or the market's down. How come I'm... Wait, I'm not down at all. Right. That gets to... Uh, we have many times where clients call uh, when the market, the stock market, has a really bad day. And we might get calls. And sometimes when the media is projecting the, or is has all these headlines with huge losses on the Dow Jones sometimes we'll preemptively reach out and send out communication to our clients to let them know that um, the stock market index has had a bad day. Yeah, this is what you're going to see in the news. Here's what's going on actually in your portfolio. Right. And in our case, I mean, it's to be fair, I mean, it's going to change over time, but we do have an awful lot of people who are retired baby boomers who are less inclined to get an Internet app and look on their phone or get a text message to see how they're doing. But that that's going to be the trend. You need to pay attention to what you're doing. That's very, very important. And, and here's another thing that's happened. Like, 
you can be a conservative investor and you watch the news and we've had conservative investors that aren't even getting hurt that bad at all. Like very minimal, like markets down 30%. They're down like 2%. It's happened where you have somebody super conservative could be, and this is just an example, but you have somebody that's barely down at all. And you, you might, they might look at their situation, look at the news and go, I'm afraid to open my mail. I'm afraid to open my envelope. I'm afraid to look at my account because the news is so bad on that stock index. And the thing they need to realize is that stock index may have absolutely nothing to do with their actual portfolio. And they're still living in fear because they never even opened the statement envelope. And the truth is, sometimes you can open that envelope and it's going to be good news. Unless you're all in stocks. If you're all in stocks, the Dow Jones is going to make sense to you. It's going to matter. The S&P 500 index, if you're all in stocks, the S&P, the NASDAQ, the Dow, they're all going to tell you roughly how awful your statement's going to look or how great your statement's going to look in a good time. I mean, April was a huge month for those people. May was really good. 2019 was really good. 2017 was really good. 2010, 2009, good recovery years. It happens. But most people aren't 100% in stocks. The other aspect to the, all three of those indexes, they're U.S. stocks. So if you have international stocks in your investment portfolio. Or international bonds or right. gold or silver or real estate. I mean, all None of those, those things, are being reported on. That's 100% true. So... It's a long-winded answer, but you, you really ought to be paying attention to your own stuff. And that stuff should be aligned with your goals, and that stuff should be aligned with your risk tolerance. And if it all goes together, then you should actually be like, never have a bad surprise if you do that. There's no guarantees of any of that stuff, but, you know, things do happen. Um, generally, pretty okay if you're aligned with your goals and you're aligned with your risk tolerance and but those indices on TV, they're just, eh, here's what stocks did today. The stock market did today. And when, oh, this brings up another little clarification I want to add, just along these lines. Okay. I had an interaction with someone on the internet, you know, just discussion thread, and, and they said, anyway, the impression that they had was that, indiv you know, we hear that on the news, we hear the word stocks. Yes. I forgot to talk about this in episode two when we were talking about all these different financial terms, but this is this is key. When you're talking about stocks, that doesn't mean just individual held stocks of companies. When they're on the news talking about stocks, they're talking about all of them. They're talking about the whole stock market, that which includes exchange-traded stock funds. It includes stock mutual funds. It includes, if they say, talk about your allocation to stocks, if you own a stock mutual fund, a mutual fund that a mutual fund, I mean, that owns stocks. That's exposure to stocks, even if it's through a mutual fund. If you own an exchange traded fund like the S and P five hundred, you know, whatever ETF fund, exchange traded fund, that's stocks. But this person had this idea that they only meant individual stocks, and then they had this idea that an individual stock was infinitely a better risk reward trade-off than owning the overall market and it's so backwards this is just not true and there's just this confusion out there that when you hear the word stocks that means more than just individual stocks it's everything that has any stock in it 
So it's just that, just it's just a clarification. And this goes through the no, you know, not knowing what you don't know type of thing, or making assumptions, and people just don't know. And it's it's totally fine. I mean, nobody should know all this stuff. Nobody needs to know all this stuff. But hopefully that helps a few people out there and answers that question. It's if we've get if we're getting it among our clientele more than more than a couple times, and if we're having these conversations online, then somebody out there is definitely wondering about these things. So it, it bears repeating. So thanks, that, Brian. Any yeah. other any no other, other comments? questions? Yeah, I was just questions, cheap shots. <laughs> no, just keep questions coming. If there's other questions out there, we'd love to answer questions, address comments, you know, give us yeah. any cheap shots like you say all the time. We're at Fierce Fiduciary on all social media. Um, everybody, thank you so very much for listening and sharing and subscribing to this podcast and finding us on the internet. Again, we're at Fierce Fiduciary. I'm Brian Beasley and, uh, and Dan Albert with me and, uh, you can also find us on Facebook, administering a group called Investing and Financial Planning for Beginners. And that's another place you can interact with us in social media as well. So until next time.